Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to everyone joining us for the longlist episode of Read Smart, the official podcast for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. I'm Razia Iqbal, journalist, broadcaster, and your host for today. Every year, the Bailey Gifford celebrates the best nonfiction books. This year, the judges panel is chaired by Caroline Sanderson, writer and associate editor of The Bookseller. The panel itself comprises writer and science journalist Laura Spinney, critic and writer for The Observer Rachel Cook, BBC journalist and presenter Clive Myrie, the author and New Yorker writer Samanth Subramanian, and the critic and broadcaster Georgina Godwin. With the long list having just been announced, we'll be talking to Caroline, Laura and Samanth about the 12 books they've chosen for the 2022 long list. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much for, for being with us. Let's start by just getting each of you to say what you were looking for from the books that you've read. I mean, a huge number of books. So overall, what were you looking for? Caroline, let's start with you. I think we were looking for uh, originality. I think we were looking for books that we didn't know we wanted to read, but then realised we absolutely did need to read them. And I think we were looking for sort of books that pay attention to the reading experience as well. Laura? Yeah, I I would agree with all of that. I mean, we we were obviously uh, reading across a huge variety of genres, so it's quite difficult to in a way know what you're looking for until you find it but I think um, uh, the obvious thing is that it has to be a riveting read Uh, I think there has to be some element of surprise if not in the story in the way it's told Um, and uh, yeah I think those would be the main things well I've, I've been in your shoes I was a judge for this prize some years ago and Exactly what you just said, uh, Laura, this idea of not knowing quite what you're going to be coming across. So it could be a quite a small, beautifully formed memoir, or it could be something really quite monumental in terms of research. Samanth, was that something that, that occurred to you as you were going through all the, all the books? I think that's right. Uh, most, if not all of the books we read over the course of more than a month uh, were obviously extremely well researched, but then the real distinctiveness comes in terms of the form the final story takes. And I personally, as a reader, I'm always looking for a writer to be playful with form or inventive. Um, and it all speaks to the the experience of the reader that Caroline spoke about. Well, you, you've teased us just a touch now in terms of what you were looking for. Let's um, get into the long list. And in alphabetical order, I'm just going to, to read the list. Legacy of Violence by Caroline Elkins, Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott, The Escape Artist, Jonathan Friedland, Other Lands, A World in the Making by Thomas Halliday, Dinner with Joseph Johnson, Books and Friendship in a Revolutionary Age, Daisy Hay. My Fourth Time, We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route, Sally Hayden. Original Sins, a memoir by Matt Rowland Hill. The Restless Republic, Britain Without a Crown by Anna Kay. A Fortunate Woman by Polly Morland, 
The Barefoot Woman by Scholastique Mukasonga, Super Infinite by Catherine Rundell, and the last one, Kingdom of Characters, A Tale of Language, Obsession and Genius in Modern China by Jing Tzu. So that's the long list. We're going to go in alphabetical order and we're just going to talk through these books. Legacy of Violence, Caroline Elkins. Um, Samanth, let's start with you with this one. This is a, a, a book that has in its origins a previous book that Caroline had written. It's very much about um, the brutal truth about Britain's uh, empire and its past. Yes, I mean, I think anybody who's followed Caroline Elkins's career will recognize this book as sort of a capstone to years, if not decades, of research. Um, she's such a conscientious historian, um, and she brings together in this book a kind of sweeping theory of the British Empire, which is not easy to do if you consider how disparate the empire was in terms of geographical and chronological sweep. Uh, but she has a real thesis here, and the thesis is that the kinds of violence that we talk about perhaps as one-off events uh, that occurred during the empire's history, they were not in fact one-off events. They were in fact part of a systemic violence that the empire used um, to subjugate its territories and its peoples. And it's really sort of, you know, Elkins's um, most powerful contribution here is to stitch these various uh, aspects of the empire together and to really bring together the proof that demonstrates uh, the, the role of violence in, in empire. And I suppose the other part of the theory in this book is the idea that the empire was liberal in its approach. But in fact, what she exposes again and again is the hubris. I mean, the hubris, but also the sort of the convenience of a particular kind of liberalism, I would say. And I think, you know, the minute it came time to repress a particular population, the sham of liberalism really fell away. And it's astonishing to look at the ways in which these subjugations were carried out. I mean, you know, you had various kinds of violence and you had the, but you had a similarity of tactic that was surprisingly consistent across the empire, in part because many of the empire's um, functionaries moved from place to place and they carried these tactics with them. Just before we move on, rather than focusing on the subject matter here, presumably the not just the form and the research and so on, but just the writing really has to be fantastic in these books, doesn't it? I mean, it does. You know, in an ideal world, a book will have everything. And Elkins is a strong writer. She has a way of bringing um, historical events onto the page that are forceful and that, you know, in aggregate across the, across the book itself add up to a kind of uh, a numbing despair on the part of the reader. But that's a, it's a good thing. I feel the effect on the reader uh, of a legacy of violence or legacy of violence is to really illuminate this kind of, um, you know, multi-century chapter of history that people in England and in Britain don't really think that much about or know very much about. And I suppose we ought to just remind listeners that she, of course, won the Pulitzer Prize for her her book, which was the origin of this, focusing on the um, on the Mau Mau in in Kenya. Let's move on to Invisible Child, quite a different book by Andrea Elliott. Uh, Laura, tell us about uh, tell us about this book. Uh, 
very much about the kind of experiences of a young girl growing up homeless in Brooklyn. And in a way, the first two books that we're talking about illustrate that contrast of, you know, this kind of large sweep of history and then something much, much more micro, smaller. Yeah, I mean, I think they they almost have something in common in that they kind of illustrate something that is under our noses in a way uh, or in front of us, but which we aren't seeing. Um, So Invisible Child is the story of uh, Dasani Coates, who is a a young black homeless girl growing up in New York. Um, And uh, it's uh, by Andrea Elliott, who's an investigative journalist for The New York Times. And actually it won, I think, the Pulitzer Prize uh, for nonfiction this year. Um, And it's uh, just extraordinary. It follows eight years in the life of Dasani and her family, her seven siblings, her mother and her her stepfather, um, and it follows them through, uh, I mean, it's turbulent, through uh, drug addiction, through homelessness, through crime, through um, triumphs at school, triumph and disaster, basically. But it's not just a portrait of her, it's a portrait of basically American society today uh, and the deep structural racism and inequality at its core. Um, And uh, it's also the portrait of... So um, Elliot goes back up the generations from Dasani to show how basically this inequality is ingrained and how it's just rattled down the generations. Um, And so it's a story about some bad choices, some good choices, but overall how basically the odds are stacked against Dasani from the start. Um, And it's, uh, I think, particularly at the moment when, you know, the the pandemic has, has sort of, brought home to us the kind of widening inequality in our western societies it's it's kind of comes as a shock is there a sense that that andrea elliott is able to to really keep a distance from the story but not lose the kind of emotional heart of telling this girl and this family story (laughs) that's a good question um, she does. She does uh, come very close to them, and perhaps that's inevitable over the time that she followed them. Um, and I think, yeah, you do. I found myself asking at times, uh, "What is she in this?" Sometimes she is. She slips into confidant. She slips into. Um, she helps the family at times and she tells you that she comes clean and and it's 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 fascinating for that aspect of things because you find yourself wondering you know and she says i think that i could not have done otherwise it would have been inhumane and so she she is kind of there's a little bit of that stream of consciousness in it but i i think that does make it really interesting maybe even troubling at some level i'm not sure uh about the lines between sort of anthropology, uh, journalism, and uh, an investigative, yeah, investigation. Let's move on to the next one, uh, The Escape Artist by Jonathan Friedland, uh, journalist and and novelist, in fact, um, journalist for The Guardian. Um, Caroline, tell us about The Escape Artist. Well, there have been many extraordinary Auschwitz stories published in the last few years, and and they all have their value, of course, because particularly with the number of survivors and first-hand witnesses to the Holocaust um, quickly diminishing. Uh, But this one is exceptional, really, both for the way that it's told, which is utterly compelling, but I think also for the, the pitch and the tone and the 
the sheer care that's been taken over it. The, the book's meticulously researched. It's a real labour of determination. You can almost feel the author's determination to do the story justice. Um, it's about 19-year-old Rudolf Werber and his fellow Auschwitz inmate, Fred Wetzler. And in April 1944, they became the first Jews ever to break out of Auschwitz. So it's it, it, it's it's thrilling in a way, although I kind of hesitate to use that word because Jonathan Freeland is a thriller writer. So the temptation is to compare this with, say, his fiction. But it's admirably measured somehow. It doesn't spare us the horrors of Verber's experiences, and uh, but I, I think the balance that he try, strike the balance that he strikes is is a tricky one. Um, in in telling us the truth about it, but also keeping us immersed in this extraordinary story. I have to admit, they're not names that I'm familiar with. And so the, it, it does feel that part of his mission in writing this meticulous history is to is to present these names to in that huge history that, that we are so familiar with in all kinds of different ways, but to 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 bring these men to, to prominence in, in a way that we are so much more familiar with Primo Levi or Anne Frank or Oscar Schindler. And and I wonder whether that struck you too. Well absolutely. You you wonder why you haven't heard this story before. And we, we talked earlier in this podcast about, you know, you're looking for books that tell you stories and that you read and think, why on earth haven't don't I know about this? And I, I think last year's winner, uh, Patrick Radden Keefe's Empire of Pain, was was a was a shining example of that. Really, so yes, absolutely. And I find it really sobering that there are still, still all these years later, these extraordinary stories emerging from that time. And Rudolf Verber's mission himself was not just to escape Auschwitz, but to tell the world what was going on. Mm. It's an incredibly powerful testament. And I I think it really commands our attention from beginning to end. Laura, tell us about Other Lands, A World in the Making by Thomas Halliday. So this book is built on on what I think is an absolutely ingenious premise. So uh, Thomas Halliday is a a, a paleobiologist and um, he... Uh, he, he took the idea that if you if you spread if you represent the Earth's history, which is about four point five billion years over a single day, then humans basically only came in in the last two milliseconds. I think it is. So we are sort of a, a, just a tiny little afterthought on this huge ocean of deep time, and and that's why we kind of have such difficulty relating to it. We kind of learn about different about previous geological epochs and periods at school and we learn about them typically in a in a table with names like Jurassic and Triassic and and the date ranges and and then we promptly forget them because they're just so exotic and strange and far away that they they really hold almost no meaning for us so he he's set about trying to bring them to life um and he, he can do that because these days um given a bunch of fossils basically scientists like him can extract all kinds of amazing information from them about um not only about the anatomy of plants and animals their 
behavior, their mating patterns, even their mating calls sometimes, their their um, ecosystems, the diseases they suffered from. They can you can basically reconstruct with a little bit of guesswork, filling in the holes, uh, whole worlds. And so what he does in this book is he walks us through those worlds as a, as a naturalist or a voyager might, um, and, and brings them to life for us. Well, bringing them to life is 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 one of the things I think I wanted to ask you about this book because in in the end it's about the the writing and and the guide that he is. Yeah, and and he does a he does a wonderful thing. I mean, he 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 kind of teases out those vast stretches of time in a way that I think we have great difficulty doing normally. So, uh, you know, he tells us, for instance, that the very first hominins, the very first of our ancestors, that is, who were more like us than than like chimps or bonobos, uh, kind of walking the earth not very well because their feet weren't very adapted yet to bipedal activity, at the same time as photosynthesis was kind of perfecting itself for the world that we know today. So he, he does this wonderful thing where he basically, you know, evolution, which is this force that we know exists, but we kind of have to take on faith because we don't see the timescales at which it operates. He he can make it make us feel the power of that force. The difference between those worlds and ours is basically the evolution that's happened in between. And you can almost feel it passing in his writing like a sort of breeze. It's 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 pretty amazing what he manages to pull off. I'm I'm keen to go on to the next one, which which is um, Dinner with Joseph Johnson, Books and Friendship in a Revolutionary Age by Daisy Hay. And it's um, uh, to you, Laura, that I'm going to turn again. But just before I do, I just want to ask all of you if you would be willing to to just quickly share with us that whole process of of kind of talking to your fellow judges about how incredibly distinctly different these books are and um, give us an insight into the kinds of conversations that, that took place without giving anything away in any major ways. Samantha, just, just tell, us, tell us if there were kind of, were there, you know, intellectual disagreements? I think people love to hear the kinds of things that go on behind those closed doors. Well, I mean, the actual fist fights only lasted about 20 minutes. But, um, the rest of the time you were nursing the bruises, OK. That's, that's exactly right. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's sort of a joy of the judging process that you can, uh, you know, you have four or five presumably like-minded people, you know, people who've been sort of reading and appreciating most of the same things that you have over years. And then you come to a room and you start talking about a book and you can actually find vastly different opinions on on a particular title. And so then it becomes this question of sort of explaining where you stand and why you stand there and hearing the other person out and not being entirely convinced on many occasions and coming around to a point of view on some. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a curious process and it sort of pleases me that books can still have this diverse effect. I mean, I think it would be a very boring world if we all came up with the same picks for a long list and then went home in a matter of minutes. Mm. Caroline, Laura, Caroline, let's go with you first. Would you like to share anything? Well, it's just, I mean, it's kind of wonderful. It's fiendishly difficult at the same time, but but just so enjoyable just to be talking about books at that at that sort of level and with that sort of concentration and attention to detail. And I think that all of us, as, as Samanth was saying, that you know we all draw on long, you know, long years of reading and reading and reading, 
um, to sort of hone what we what we think. Because um, it's one thing reading a book and having in your head your thoughts about it, but it's quite another sitting there with your erudite fellow judges and actually putting into words, you know, your your feelings about the book, why you admire it and it's it's a wonderful wonderful exercise and I you know I feel really honoured to be part of it actually. Laura I won't I won't ask you to uh to unless you do want to say something we can talk we can go on to dinner with Joseph Johnson um if you want. Let's do that. Let's do that. So this is uh Daisy Hayes book about um the publisher who befriended some of the 18th century's most radical figures. Tell us about this. Yeah, Joseph Johnson. And I mean, I I had not heard of him, uh, I admit. Um, And I think that he, I think it's fair to say that he wasn't a great figure of the Romantic Revolution himself. But what you realise reading this book is that he, he, in many ways, made many of the others possible. So um, Daisy Hay does this brilliant thing where she takes, uh, she, she basically takes the fact that the, the great social revolutionaries of the time in London, Mary Wollstonecraft, for example, the great poets, uh, William Cooper and William Wordsworth and, and Anna Barbold, the scientists, Joseph Priestley, uh, uh, Erasmus Darwin, and I could go on. They, they all had one thing in common, which was Joseph Johnson. And they basically gravitated to his dining room table in his crooked little dining room above his shop in the shadow of St Paul's Cathedral. And they met at his three o'clock dinners once a week and they kind of hammered out their ideas and argued over them and, and had fist fights much like us at times. <laughs> and they, uh, and, they uh, and, and, and I think what she does uh, really well with this um, is that she, I mean, you know, there have been a lot of biographies of the individual figures in the, in, uh, who made up that revolution. But what she does is she makes you realise that, you know, except in very rare cases, the individual genius is something of a myth. And there's that it's the ecosystem that 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 matters. It's the it's what's it's the ideas that are circulating circulating in the air. It's the fact that people can hammer out those ideas and their arguments on on their, you know, on their peers. And, and that's what he made possible, I think. I mean, there is absolutely individual merit to be accorded in the fact that the ones that we remember tend to be the ones who were perspicacious enough and brave enough to pluck those ideas uh, out of the air. But but he created the sort of atmosphere where that became possible. And he very often did so at great political and financial risk to himself. I mean, he encouraged these people, he supported them morally, he, uh, he, he stuck by them, uh, he took them in off the streets sometimes when that was necessary, and he lent them money, and he, he did everything that, that, that needed to be done to make sure that they could produce the works that he would go on to publish and that, and that went on to, to shape, you know, our thinking so much. It's so interesting talking to the three of you about the impact that books and collective reading, individual solitary reading, um, it is uh, the kind of impact that that makes, because this book is about a period of time when the written word could make your reputation or or cost you your your liberty. Yeah, absolutely. It was dangerous times. And, you know, uh, maybe it's good to be reminded of that. Um, you know, people could be thrown into prison for expressing certain ideas. And, and actually, it's really interesting because Joseph Johnson, along with many of the people who gathered around his table, came from, you know, the religious dissenting movement at that time. And so they were, they were you know, they were used perhaps to thinking out of the box, but also to being treated as outsiders and sometimes persecuted for that. 
Caroline, let's talk about the next one on the list. Uh, My fourth time we drowned, seeking refuge on the world's deadliest migration route by Sally Hayden. It seems to me that uh, we are um, talking about books that are both about, it's almost as though history is current affairs um, in in so much of what we've discussed so far. Tell us about this book, which feels so current to me. Oh, it certainly does. I mean, from that very title, my fourth time we drowned. I mean, how arresting is that just from the very beginning? So Sally Hayden is the Africa correspondent for the Irish Times and an award winning journalist um, who focuses on migration and conflict and humanitarian crises. Um, This is a book that's already won the Orwell Prize. It's an account of the horrific experiences of migrants um, in Libya who've reached Libya and are hoping to cross to Europe. And I mean, it's so powerful. It's a work of reportage that I think, I mean, I was talking about balance earlier, achieves a really taut balance between the author's admirable and really tenacious investigative journalism um, she goes to, to great lengths to 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 get to the truth, but it, it combines those with the personal testimonies of migrants with whom she's in touch, who've endured horrors that urgently need to be exposed. It, it's got a real directness in the telling that's completely searing, but it forces us to confront questions like why Europeans care so little when black children die in the Mediterranean Sea or how much suffering a human being must go through before their stories command our attention. It's it's um, unforgettable, really. Given that it's a, a work of reportage, I, I wonder to what extent she offers any solutions that are at least being considered by those kind of policymakers, people in positions of power. I'm not sure it's quite that kind of book. I think it's much more about the stories we hear and the stories that we don't hear. I mean, we we, we do hear about migrants who make it, I suppose. We hear about the ones who tragically do drown. But this is about the migrants who are trying over and over again, desperately, to reach Europe. Um, and, And I think it's an assertion of of investigative journalism and reportage, as I say, which I, I think is just, it's so crucial in these times when, when we think about which stories get lost, you know, in our, in our news agenda, which, I mean, I'm smiling because at the moment we know exactly what our news agenda is, but mm. yeah, um, I, I've never read anything quite like it. And it's, it, it's commanding in, 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 bringing our attention to these hidden stories, really. Laura, let's talk about Original Sins, a memoir by Matt Rowland Hill. Tell us about this one. Yeah, so I'm not sure I would have picked this up normally, but um, I'm very glad I did. So it's basically a memoir of uh, Matt Rowland Hill's struggles with addiction. Um, And, uh, I mean, it's just... It, it it's kind of uh, extraordinary for its brutal honesty um his extraordinary self-awareness even though uh by the end of the book you realize that he's not uh, uh by any means out of the woods uh w- with respect to his addiction 
uh, and its humour. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's full of blood and shit and semen. Um, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, it, you, so, you know, you, you see the seamy side of, of addiction, you really do. Um, but it's also very funny. Uh, and I think that there's one line of it that actually, I think for me, uh, sort of brought home the absolute dread of, of what addiction can do do to people um which wasn't even the sort of goriest part of it but he talks about how at one point he's living beyond clocks and calendars in a in a kind of eternal present i think on the on the on the quiet limit of the world i'm paraphrasing but it was something like that and i just thought that to me just brought the, the horror of it home but it's beautifully written uh and it's it's just yeah it's searing it's uh it's unforgettable i, I was going to ask you about the writing because in a way the 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 memoir as a genre tends to make it into these long lists and short lists not just because of the kind of the the story the originality of the story but how it's been wrought yeah and i mean he he is uh, definitely not a very nice person for large stretches of this book um but and yet you yet you somehow relate to him and sympathize with him and i think it's the humor that does that um he he turns to addiction basically um i mean if you if you can draw out cause and effect this this clearly which i'm sure you can't but he he's revolting against his uh christian evangelist parents uh who are eternally at war with each other spitting out uh, biblical quotations at each other and and he kind of finds solace and perhaps a replacement in addiction but gradually what he realizes is that he's basically swapped one world of extremes good bad white black uh you know heaven hell for another and that what he can't find in his life is moderation so i think it's really profound as well as 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 being funny i mean he talks at one point for example about his disgust at finding that all the recovery programs that he successively enrolls in are basically peddling some kind of watered down form of the christianity that he was running around and running away from in the first place and and he says with disgust how the architects of one program have essentially rifled through the, the big world religions for the values that suit them, cherry pick them and then package them together in something that resembles a liberal Democrat manifesto. So, I mean, he's really funny in the way that he, he tells this terrible story. And I think that's what makes it a special book. Thank you. Uh, Caroline, what a time uh, to be talking about a book called The Restless Republic, Britain Without a Crown by Anna Kay. Aha, uh-huh. yes. Well, I suppose when we picked it, we didn't quite uh, fully know the context in which we were going to be talking about it today. Um, again, this is one of those nonfiction books that that I didn't realise that I needed to read. I mean, 17th century history isn't my usual bag, but I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I read recent history, but I, I don't usually go back this far. But I very quickly realised with this book how brilliantly and how enjoyably it was going to plug a big gap in my knowledge of English history, the the period of the Commonwealth between 1649 and 1660. It's consistently entertaining in bringing that period awry. It's consistently entertaining in bringing that history, that period alive for us. And I really admire the way that she's chosen to tell the story of this turbulent decade. So 
we, we we read about the sort of big picture history about Oliver Cromwell and what was what was sort of going on in Parliament, but it, there's also a remarkable cast of hitherto little known characters who really leap from the page. There's a visionary woman called Anna Trapnell. There's there's a guy called Marchmont Nedham who was the Alistair Campbell of his day, and then there's this really indomitable countess, the Countess of Derby. He's a, a royalist on the Isle of Man. And it's it's full of really vivid stories. And, and it really feels, you know, like living history. Let's move on to um, A Fortunate Woman by uh, Polly Morland. Uh, Caroline, let's stay with you. Tell us about this one. Well, we talked about big sweep books, big sweeps of history, uh, large canvases. This is a beautifully wrought book. It's a microcosmic gem. It's a companion volume. It's a companion volume to a book called *A Fortunate Man* by John Berger, which was published in 1967 and charted the life of a country GP. And to say it's a companion book to that makes it sound derivative, but it absolutely isn't. It sort of mirrors Berger's book in in charting the life of, in this case, a female country doctor but is set firmly in the 21st century. And the, the Morland's writing, which is beautiful, is, uh, is richly complemented by the photographs in this book by Richard Baker. So it, it's a beautiful book to look at and to hold as well. But, the, but it, has, it has such resonance. She, she shadows this doctor as she goes and visits patients across the small community that where she lives and... Uh, she herself lives and it really makes you reflect on what it is to truly care for patients what it is to help someone's heal what it is to help someone heal and and i think it raises also quite pointed questions in the wake of the pandemic during which part of the book is set i should say it raises questions about what we really want our nhs to to do what do we want it to be because she builds such lasting relationships with the people in in her sort of patch in her community, so it's a sort of again a work of reportage, but reportage in the round because she also is wonderful at describing the sort of natural world in which this is all taking place. So it's sort of shot through with with beautiful nature writing as well. And informed in part by her mother, who suffers from Alzheimer's, being moved into a care home. Yes, exactly right. So you get that sort of memoir bit as well, um, that this is all taking place at the same time. It's it's a very, it's a very sort of, um, it's a very difficult time for everybody, but what emerges from it is the the care and compassion of a kind which we really hope for from our NHS but often don't find I think. Samant let's turn to you from A Fortunate Woman to a book called The Barefoot Woman by Scholastic Mukasonga. Tell us about this one. Well this is one of those books uh, that you didn't know you wanted to read. Um, There have been books about the Rwandan genocide before uh, most notably Philip Gurevich's nonfiction classic um, from a couple of decades ago. Uh, but this takes an entirely new perspective on the genocide in, in, in the sense that it is told by one of its survivors. 
and it is told by somebody who has great patience with laying out the story of her family in the months and years leading up to the genocide itself. And it's tempting to say that this is a book about the genocide, but really it's a book about the way in which some Rwandan families lived and the ways of life and the communities that were utterly destroyed and ripped apart by the violence that was to come. And and a, a kind of homage to motherhood. An homage to motherhood, yes, because uh, the, the, the book kicks off by promising to tell the reader how uh, the narrator's mother is killed. And, uh, you know, it's a slow burn book in the sense that the author doesn't rush to this conclusion, to this really grisly, grisly climax. She takes her time laying out the kind of woman her mother was, the ways in which her mother tended to the family, protected the family and the children and uh, the community at large. And, and so when we finally reach the point in the narrative when this mother unfortunately passes away, it hits us so much harder uh, than any other book that I can recall reading about the Rwandan genocide. You, you talk about it as a slow burn book, but it's it's a slender book. It is. I mean, I, it's it's very small, very tightly contained. Um, and this is also, I should mention, this is one of the books we have on the long list, if not the only one, I think, that is actually a translation. Uh, so this is newly published in English for the first time and in the UK for the first time. Um, it was published a few years ago in other languages, but its its translation is vivid and it is patient. Uh, I keep coming back to this word patient because I think it's something that narrators um, don't often practice in writing nonfiction books. They want to get to the, you know, the good stuff, the big <laughs> explosions. And and uh, Scholastic Mukasonga has incredible time and and um, and and patience to let her narrative breathe. Let's turn to the next one and stay with you, Samantha. Uh, Super Infinite by Catherine Rundell. Oh, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed reading this book. I, I picked this up uh, thinking that it would be well beyond my realm of interest. It's a biography of John Donne, the poet, and I haven't read very much of Donne's poetry, uh, and I didn't know very much about him, and I anticipated with a little trepidation a kind of scholarly work of literary criticism. And instead, what Catherine Rundell gives us is a light, almost impressionistic biography um, combined with an extremely deep and profound reading of his works. Um, but she doesn't sort of overplay either hand. So the entire book feels enjoyable. It feels uh, like a, not like a chore to read, but as something quite the opposite. And she, she pulls off this remarkable um, effect of writing in the mode of the life that she is describing. So she describes Dunn's life as something that was um, intellectually exciting, uh, physically and, 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 and temporally sort of quite exciting as well in terms of the times he lived through and, and, and the things that he saw and experienced. And she brings that excitement to her prose. It's one of the most um, beautifully written books on our long list. And uh, it's, it just makes turning the pages so easy. So in terms of what Caroline said earlier, the reader experience, I think Super Infinite is right up there. And the extent to which she imagines or speculates on the life of John Donne's wife? 
Yes, I mean this is this is one of the 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 pleasing aspects of the book, which is that it's not just Dunn whose life is richly populated; it's the people around Dunn as well, including his wife. In many such biographies, usually the wife of the male writer is ignored. This is quite the opposite, and I think she uses. Um, both the few documents that do exist, but also sort of the the documentation about her family, to really bring her to life and to illustrate this this dynamic relationship between the two and the the and so when we come to the point in the narrative when Dunn loses his wife, we feel his sorrow just as strongly as he does. So we come to the last book, Kingdom of Characters, A Tale of Language, Obsession and Genius in Modern China by Jing Tsu. Samanth, tell us about this one. One of the things that I always look for in nonfiction books is sort of oblique angles into big themes. And I think Jing Su's book is is precisely that kind of that kind of narrative. Um, we, you know, it is a it is a, in a sense a story of modern China. It's a story of the politics and the political life of China over the twentieth century, but it's told through the evolution of its script and of the script's encounters with technology over the twentieth century. And it's fascinating how she manages to. Uh, to delineate so many of the big political themes in Chinese history through, for example, uh, the problems that the Chinese had with um, with adapting the script to tell it to the telegraph, and then later to the typewriter, or adapting the technology to the script. So it it, it works both ways, and these are big political questions, although we may not think of them as such. And then eventually, of course, the simplification of the Chinese script into pinyin, which is the form in which it is most used today, was an intensely political and much deliberated process as well. So you you might think that this is a book about the Chinese script and a book about technology, but it's really a book about the big political debates that animated China and its encounters with the world in the 20th century. It it sounds like a, a a wonderfully original way of talking about a country that we all need to and should be learning about all the time. It is, and and you know, fortunately for us, Jingsu doesn't just take the bird's eye view of this narrative. I mean, there are some wonderful characters in these in this book uh, that stick with you. I mean, the person I'm thinking of is the librarian, for example who was working on his own version of the script and who, during an invasion of his city, insisted that he and his assistants pack up all his books and take as many of they could as they could with them. Um, and so there are these there are these intense pen portraits that are quite marvelous. And I think um, they're a great way into, into the story. So 12 books, you certainly have a, a challenge ahead of you. Uh, let me just ask you how you're all feeling at the moment with the prospect of the long list being uh, made public, and then you're going to have to reduce this to, to, to six books. Um, Caroline, let's start with you. <laughs> well, I, I'm greatly looking forward to it, I must say. And I think some the experience of visiting these books, then revisiting them, is one thing and then actually in the room discussing them and just by listening to the other judges you know uh, everybody has a habit of drawing out new angles giving you ways of thinking about these books that you you might not have considered and and that's a it's it's a remarkable process really it's going to be very difficult but then you know a t- what a pleasure as well 
Laura, are you uh, are you already um, prepared, ready to defend particular books that you that you know you might have a battle on your hands with, or or not? I don't know. It's quite daunting to reduce twelve to six. I must say. I mean, there have been moments uh, where I've thought during my reading, I would just love to kidnap all the other judges and. and bring them home so that I can talk to them because we do all bring um, very different uh, backgrounds and reading I think to each book and so the conversations have been so fascinating and enlightening uh, that I wish we could have more of them but yeah uh, 12 to 3 is tough very tough. Samantha, what about you? Are you are you already feeling ready to champion particular ones, or or do you feel that you you have to really go back and and look at all twelve again with with enormous care? Well, I mean, the way the long list works is we are still reading for the first time some of the books that we haven't you know individually read in the previous cycle of judging. So we kind of broke the big list up and distributed the books. And so each title was read by at least three people going into the long list, but not all five of us. And so now what we need to do is to read the books that we hadn't read the first time. So I'm actually going through some of these books that Caroline and Laura are talking about. And um, and so I haven't yet gotten to the stage where I know what I'll be championing and what I'll be aiming to scuttle. Um, but um, But I will get there eventually. But you're looking forward to it. Oh, I'm absolutely looking forward to it. I mean, here's sort of another interesting insight into the entire judging process. Um, when, when, the, when the whole thing started, we set up a WhatsApp group. And I imagine when the group was set up that we'd all be sort of chattering away about what we liked about some books and not about other books. Um, it turns out everybody's playing their cards very close to their chest. So that WhatsApp group has been strangely silent <laughs> for the last month and a half. Um, so I'm guessing people are going to sort of come to the meeting in October armed with sheaves of notes. Um, I, 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 need, I need to get it going again, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, next time we speak, I want to hear about the activity on the WhatsApp group. Um, Saman Subramanian, Caroline Sanderson and Laura Spinney, thank you all so much. This has been so interesting and you have clearly uh, whetted our appetites for uh, what's to come. Uh, I'd also like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its continued generous support of this podcast. We are going to be announcing the shortlist, which will be drawn from these 12 books that you've been hearing about on the 10th of October at a special event at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. The winner will be announced on the 17th of November. And if you're interested in finding out more about the long-listed books, you can visit our website or follow us on Twitter at BG Prize. Thanks so much for listening. Till the next time. Bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.